The reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 4. It's on page 1007, 1007, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, sir, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord.
I'm aware that for some of you, my southern accent might be, my southern American accent might be a little bit of a distraction. I hope that maybe it just helps you pay a little more attention. Um, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to speak here today. I pray, Father, that my words will be your words, that it will be your message, and that each person here will hear the unique message that you have for them today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So in our text today, Jesus uses the metaphor of water to explain to this woman about eternal life. It was a particularly meaningful metaphor for this woman. She lived in a very hot climate. She had no running water. It was an agrarian economy. To get water for her family every day, she had to carry heavy clay jars out to a well, fill them, and then walk back with those jars. You can imagine how heavy they must have been. So her dependence on water for survival was, uh, was very obvious, and a significant amount of her effort was expended every day just to meet that basic need for her family. Contrast that with today. We all know water is vital. We learned that in school. But when was the last time you worried about having enough water to get through the day? I mean, frankly, all we have to do is get up from our sofas, take a few steps to our kitchens. There's all the water we need. We turn on our taps. We flush our toilets without even a thought of where the water's coming from or the effort that it took to get to us. But water, of course, is just as necessary for our physical survival today as it ever was. Survivalists will tell us that the body can go for three weeks without food, but only three days without water. We can survive with just a limited amount of drinking water, but the fullest, most enjoyable life requires abundance. When there's abundance, there's beautiful flowers, luscious green trees, lawns, lakes and rivers to enjoy. When there's adequate water, then we have enough for clean, hygienic living systems that just take our sewage away from us and we don't even have to think about it. But as water becomes more restricted, we can exist but not necessarily thrive. When our bodies become dehydrated, we can become listless and tired. Our muscles begin to ache. And our bodies, frankly, just don't work as they're meant to work. Those of us who live in developed countries tend to think of drought as something that happens in Africa and third world countries, places where they're not as clever as we are, aren't as advanced, don't have the systems that we have. But that dependence upon water is becoming painfully clear in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta is not typically an arid place. Um, You may not know much about Atlanta, but if you've ever seen the Masters Golf Tournament on television, maybe you've seen the beautiful green rolling hills and grass, massive luscious trees, spectacular flowers. That's very typical of our region. But Atlanta is now experiencing a very serious drought of epic and historic proportions. The rainfall deficit for 2007 alone is 16 inches Our lake, Lake Lanier, that's our primary source of our drinking water, 
is at its lowest point ever, and some experts are telling us that it has less than 79 days of drinking water left. At the beginning, well, water conservation measures are beginning to be put in place, and you know, when it first started, you know, last few years we've had a few years of maybe not quite as much rainfall. Then they said, you, know, you can't water your lawn every day. You, know, you can water your lawn every other day, or you know, some simple measures like that went into place. But the rains haven't come, and so more serious cutbacks are in place now. Many lawns and gardens are dead because watering is prohibited. Our biggest garden center chain in Atlanta, Pike Nursery, they're on you know, practically every corner, just filed for bankruptcy this week because who can buy flowers? Who would even think to buy flowers when you can't even water? Attendees at large stadium sporting events are now being told not to flush. For the first time, many people are coming face to face with the reality that water is necessary for their personal survival, and it's, it's sobering. But even with an abundant supply, the human body, when maintained at a very perfect level of hydration, will still eventually die. But our story today is about living water. The living water that Jesus tells this woman about is not only about never being thirsty, but it comes with a promise of a life that never ends. Of course, Jesus isn't talking about a physical life. He's talking about a spiritual life. He's referring to the new life, the new birth, the same one he was telling Nicodemus about when he said you must be born again. It's the same message, but it's told in a very different way. But there's a world of difference between Nicodemus and this woman in our story today. You know, one of my favorite things about the book of John is that he gives us glimpses into personal conversations that Jesus has with individuals. You know, it's not just the big sermons on the mounts and to masses of people, but we get to see what Jesus is like one-on-one. -on -one. In fact, the story of Nicodemus and this woman are only found in the Gospel of John. But Nicodemus was a wealthy, respected, educated religious leader. This is just the kind of man you would expect the Son of God in human form to be talking to. But this woman, who is this woman? Why would Jesus choose her to reveal that he's the Messiah? She had more than a few strikes against her. First of all, she is a woman. Devout Jewish men would not be alone with a woman, not their wives. And if it was unavoidable, they certainly would never have entered into a conversation with her. To have a deep conversation or share anything of importance would have been unthinkable. Women were not educated. They were not decision makers. Their testimonies were not valid. Their word meant nothing. Indeed, it was a man's world. The second strike against her was her race. Huge racial prejudice issues between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were all descendants of Abraham. But while most of the Jews were in exile in Babylon, there were a few that remained in the area of Samaria. But even Samaria was overtaken by foreigners, and these Jews in Samaria began to intermarry with those who came in and overtook their area. Whereas the Jews that were in exile in Babylon maintained the purity of their race, the purity of their faith and their religion and their worship of God. So then years later, these Jews were allowed to return from exile back to their homeland. And they discovered these Samaritans 
who have not only diluted their religion, but have mixed the race. They despised them. And then the Samaritans weren't so happy about these Jews coming back either. In fact, they opposed their return. And for hundreds of years, this animosity goes on. So the Jews considered all Samaritans to be unclean, and a devout Jew would be ceremonially unclean if they even touched a vessel handled by a Samaritan, much less drank water from it. Sadly, we've all witnessed racial prejudice in our own day, so it's not too difficult to imagine this situation either. So she's a woman. Her race is a problem. But then there's her character. As I said, even speaking to a virtuous woman would have been unthinkable, but this woman was far from virtuous. She had had not one, not two, three or four husbands, five husbands, and was now living with a man who was not her husband. Even by today's far more liberal standards, that's shocking. In my preparations, I was reading a commentary that had this to say about it. Divorce in the Jewish Samaritan culture could only be initiated by the husband, who had to state publicly that his wife was unclean, unlovable, or incapable of fulfilling her wifely duties. Divorce, therefore, shamed a woman. She'd been through this five times. To be fair, we don't know the circumstances of her marriages, but it seems likely that if it's happened five times, at least some of the blame had to fall on her. But it's heartbreaking, isn't it? I mean, how painful her life must have been, and what trauma started off this cycle in her life? And the other women, they would have hated her, they would have scorned her, they probably would have kept their children and their husbands far away from her. She would have been ostracized. Why else would she be coming to the well at noon, the hottest part of the day? What most of the women did in that day, they waited to the cool of the day, and then they went to the well. And you could imagine it was probably a little bit of a social occasion, time to catch up on a little gossip as you go and carry your jars. Not for this woman. So for myriad reasons, this woman never would have expected to encounter anyone, much less Jesus, and have a conversation with him. She was a nobody. She was at the rock bottom of every social stratum. But this is a story of hope and of new life, and so we don't leave her there, fortunately. But why did Jesus go to Samaria? It's quite surprising that he would be there at all. So he was leaving Judea because the Pharisees were starting to pay a little bit too much attention to him, becoming concerned about his popularity, and Jesus knew that it wasn't yet his time. He knew that eventually a confrontation would come that would lead to his death, but now was not the time for that. So he wisely withdrew from Jerusalem. And just to give you a little illustration of the geography of the time, pretend that this is the Jordan River, and Judea, the area of Jerusalem, is here, and then there's Samaria, and then up here is Galilee, where he's trying to get to. So if you're trying to get from the Jerusalem area up to Galilee, I mean, obviously the most direct route is just to go straight up. But that's not what the Jews of that day did. The common route that they would take is to cross over the Jordan River, go up through an area called Perea. There's even another little river here on the map that they must have had to cross, and then come back across the Jordan River to Galilee. But let's look at verses 3 and 4 of our text again. 
When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Had to go through Samaria. Why? I mean, from the context, we don't see any reason to be hurried. He was in no rush, and in fact, later we see that he lingered in Samaria for a couple of days. So why did he need to go there? We know that Jesus didn't do anything in his ministry without prayerful consideration. He was completely yielded to the Father's will. So this was no chance encounter. He went to Samaria with a specific purpose, to give the Samaritans what he had given Nicodemus, the offer of a new life, a new eternal life. Secondly, by bringing the gospel to the despised Samaritans, and by doing it through this woman, he demonstrated for all time that this good news is for everyone, regardless of your gender, regardless of your race, regardless of your social standing. And when you read to the end of the chapter, you see that ultimately, because of this woman's testimony, her whole village comes. I think it's important to recognize that this is not a parable. You know, Jesus taught a lot using parables, which were make-believe stories that illustrated his point. But this was real. Real people, real events, real places that are documented in history. Events that were quite shocking for his day. And it's interesting to me that none of the other gospel authors chose to include this story. You can only speculate as to why, but it makes me wonder if maybe they weren't still dealing with their own racial prejudices of trying to believe that can it really be for the Samaritans too? Who knows? But let's look at their conversation. In verse 7, we see that the conversation begins very simply. Will you give me a drink? Jesus was tired and really thirsty. This was another confirmation of his humanity. And looking at verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan, Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I'm sorry, that's not what I intended to read. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Well, now he has her attention. Living water? You mean my water vessel will never be empty? I won't have to keep coming to this well? I don't have to risk the scorn of these women? Great, where can I get some? Of course, Jesus, realizing that she wasn't getting it, changes his tack. Let's look at verse 16. Go, call your husband and come back. Why that? Why call attention to her greatest shame? Why put your finger on the very sorest spot of this woman's life? Was he being cruel? She didn't run away in shame, so we have to assume that he wasn't being condescending or unkind. He was simply stating the truth. And to her credit, she does show ownership of that truth. But neither did he excuse or condone her life. He described her life so she could draw her own conclusions about the mess that she was in. She already perceived her need for physical water. 
He's now gently guiding her into a realization of her need for the spiritual water that he was offering. By switching the conversation to her personal life, he reveals that her attempts at finding satisfaction have failed. And this is the place that we all need to come to so we can recognize our need for Christ. We all have a need for the spiritual living water that Jesus offers. We can try to fill that void with other drinks, romance, wealth, sex, security, approval, but they all fall short. The void remains. And in fact, with many of those things, the void just gets larger as you want more and more and more of it. Only relationship with God through Jesus can satisfy our longings. We were created to be in relationship with God. The water that Jesus offers becomes a perpetual spring within us, giving us eternal life and a fullness of life that fills up that void like nothing else can. It not only satisfies, it maintains life. And whatever choices we make in our life, our physical lives will come to an end. But we have the option right now of starting a spiritual life, a new life, an eternal life with God in the spiritual realm. And it begin, it, that life can, can begin now, even while we're still living our physical existence. The woman in our story doesn't understand it yet. But Jesus is offering her a chance to be forgiven. To experience a fountain of his spirit within her that will clean out the muck and make room for something beautiful and something eternal. But before she can have it, she's got to acknowledge the mess of where she is now. It's the only way. So returning to our text, let's see how she reacts to his very personal knowledge of her life. Looking at verses 19 and 20. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Where did that come from? She changes the subject. I mean, who can blame her? She begins a debate about religion. One of the hot disputes of that day was about a geographic place of worship. They, they all believed, Jews and Samaritans, that there was a specific place where you had to worship, and you could only worship in those places correctly. The Jews believed it was in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans on this mountain, Gerizim. Her response by bringing up this debate is a bit like the person who, when asked, how's your spiritual life, says, well, you know, I used to go to that church on Elm Street with my grandmother, but after she died just wasn't the same for me anymore. And then I tried that church downtown, but, you know, that vicar's really stuffy and boring and just wasn't for me. And, well, you know, that neighborhood church near me, well, it's just much too happy-clappy, so I don't think I can go there. So I'm just not doing anything right now. We often deflect the personal issue by talking about church. And Jesus could have redirected her away from this. He could have gotten back to the point of her sin and you know, continued to to beat her up about that. But he wasn't putting her on trial. He was beginning a relationship. He was trying to have a conversation with her. So he allows her to direct the conversation. Looking at verse 21. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And skipping down to 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. True worshipers in spirit and in truth. He cuts through the debate about place to usher in a new realm of worship. It's not about place. It's not about religion. It's not about whether we have guitar music or high church or any of those things. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, period. Living water as giving by Christ is always within us, and it allows us to worship him all the time, anytime, wherever we are. This was a very new concept to her. And one of the most exciting things to me about this story is that before she said a word, Jesus knew her. Imagine how she must have felt when she realized that this was the Messiah and he knew her. He knew about all of her cares. He knew about her suffering. He even knew about her sin. And yet, he cared about her and he chose her of all the people in her village to be the one to reveal himself to. And Jesus knows each one of us just that well. For some of us, that's comforting. That feels really good. But I think others of us actually prefer a more distant God. Kind of a hands-off relationship with him. God, you stay up there. I'll take care of things down here. Save me a spot up there. I'm coming someday. Make sure I don't get hit by a bus or anything. But other than that, I'll just take care of things myself. And I, you know, on Sunday morning, I'll come. I'll come sit in a pew for a while, and I'll worship for a little bit. But then come Monday, I'm going to go about my way, and I, I can take care of things myself. Maybe we even profess a belief in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Maybe we even trust him for our salvation. But let's not get any crazy. Let's not get crazy and go any further than that. We want that eternal life, you know, the one that's up there in heaven after we die. But we don't want to shake up our life here and now. I know I was personally like that for many years. For some people, it's preferable to talk about and do religion than to get real and be honest about our spiritual lives. Just as we take for granted that water that comes out of our tap, we take for granted the living water that Jesus offers us. We're afraid that if we drink too much of that water, we'll have to change. We might become strange. So we turn off that tap, or we turn it down to just a trickle, maybe a little more at Christmas and Easter, but just enough to maintain a spiritual existence, a minimal spiritual existence. But in doing so, we close ourselves off from the abundance of that perpetual spring, the full, satisfied life that we can have now, even in this physical world. Just as with the water restrictions in Atlanta, there's just enough of a trickle to sustain human life, but none of that abundance needed for clean living, beautiful gardens, and rivers. So in conclusion, if you're already in a relationship with him, but you've got that tap turned down really tight, I encourage you to open it up a little bit this week. Perhaps you're feeling spiritually dehydrated 
Your faith feels a little dry and dull. Surrender to him and let his living water flow through you and flush out the stagnant mess. And let him fill you with the love and the joy and the peace, the abundant life that is so freely given to us. If you don't believe you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, I would just encourage you to start the conversation this week. Start today. And be honest. If you have your doubts, if you really don't believe, that's okay. Just be honest and start the conversation. He will meet you where you are. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wellspring of life you've given us. I pray that everyone here will open themselves up to your cleansing, your healing, and the fullest life they can have through you. Lord Jesus, I'm conscious that there may be people here today who are lonely, who feel like outcasts, much like the woman in our story. May they take comfort from knowing that while on earth you sought out one such as as them and revealed yourself to her. Father, may they hear your message of hope and know how much you love them. In the name of Jesus, amen.